What's going on and welcome back to another episode of Performance Talk Podcast. I'm your host Jay, of course, home of F1 Minute, the hottest live show on the planet for Formula One content. And I got with me today, Bryson Sullivan from Tech Heads Podcast up here, man, doing his thing. So listen, first thing we're going to say, you already know podcast platforms rely on people to heavily sometimes make ratings. If you could go over to the Techhead Podcast, come over to Wolfpack Performance Podcast and give us a rating of five stars, no less. We're not taking anything less than five stars. And the family is in the chat today and Bryson has blessed us with his knowledge and his face. All right. So Bryson, how you doing, brother, man? It's, it's the only face I got that I really have a choice. <laughs> you know? um, but but no, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. And it actually is a good thing to actually promote podcasts and things you're working on because I always forget to do it. Right. I'm always talking about whatever the podcast is about. I rarely say <laughs> subscribe and, and like and the normal things that normal, you know, content creators do. So I'm slowly learning, but right. having a good time. Man, so listen, we're going to get into some things, man. First of all, there's a lot of new family member here at the Wolfpack fam. So a lot of people may not be familiar with your background, uh, your passion and what you do and what you've done. So if you could briefly give them an idea of, you know, your knowledge, your acumen, where it comes from and how you got into motorsports and what you are here doing today. Yeah, I'm just uh, I'm mostly a tech nerd that talks too much about race cars. Um, you know, I, I do have the uh, the benefit of having uh, you know undergraduate and graduate degrees in engineering. And I've worked in, in aerospace and a few other industries, but Formula One has really been the thing that has excited me the most uh, in recent years. And one of the benefits of you know the internet is yes, the bad parts of it can be pretty bad, but mm. the good parts of it are really right. ex- extraordinary when they're working well. So being able to actually right. get in contact with people that actually work at Formula One who have first-person knowledge of what the teams are doing and the tech developments has opened kind of a new door to helping to better understand how complex and amazing these cars are. And occasionally, I'm, I'm kind of good at explaining things or getting a, a version of complex concepts and technical concepts to package them in a way that most people can understand. That's not always the case, and I certainly don't know everything. There's certainly plenty more people out there that are more talented than me but if I have an opportunity to try to explain something that I have an understanding of I will try to do that and I think the Tech Heads podcast is again it's been a a fun sort of year almost of of having it but essentially it was just a way to document conversations that we were already having it's just hey I want to talk about this let's actually you know you know set it to uh, some kind of record so we can reference it later and also just guide our own conversations. I love talking about tech stuff when I come to other people's podcasts like your own, but I can't always dictate what we talk about. And on that, my own right. podcast, I get to do that. So that's why I enjoy it. And then the final thing is I just, uh, on Twitter, I will offer some commentary and some insights on some things that I see. Um, but there's an entire, you know, community of great F1 tech people you can follow. I'm just uh, one of them. Yes, you are one of them and you know, one of my favorite ones. I'm going to tell you that right now just because of you definitely are different. You said that to me before like I'm just I am different. Like you are different in the way you approach things and the way you do package them and I think that is good that you know how to package them so that people that may not be so 
knowledgeable of Formula One and the technical aspect of these cars and the regulations. They need that. They need that segue. They need that bridge or that that gap or that cable, so call it, so that they can understand. And maybe some people, it's, it's very important to understand, people always don't want to dive deep into the technology and the tech side of Formula One, but sometimes they want to know. And Bryson has the ability to let that oil float to the surface. And you can be like, oh, okay, now I understand that. And so that's why you are one of my favorites as far as that comes, man, because you do a very good job at that. So talking about that, we're going to get into some very important things. Uh, the W13, W14, W14B, if you could explain, this is your time where you come in and do the best thing that you do. Explain to people what a B-spec car really means. Yeah, I mean, legally, you know, technically, legally, the definition of a B-spec car requires a new chassis. In this case, it'd be a, a, okay. a new monocoque. Now, by that definition, the car that we saw in Villain Monaco is not technically a B-spec car, but it is everything that you could imagine being changed to be a B-spec car, it is a B-spec car. So if someone wants to argue that particular point, uh, I would say it's a B-spec car in everything, but uh, uh, in, it's a, it's a B-spec car in every sense except for the technical sense. What I would say about that particular car is it is, an, it is a recognition by Mercedes that the direction that they went in at the beginning of the 2022 regulation change ultimately was not correct. And what's impressive about it is, yes, there's pride involved, and yes, there's you know reams and reams of technical data in their CFD and wind tunnel analysis showing why that zero-pod concept should be incredible, should be seven-tenths faster than, than the field. But CFD is not the racetrack. The wind tunnel is not the racetrack. And in the real car with real-world situations and real-world circumstances, because it wasn't delivering the performance that they were looking for, not only that, but it was just a very edgy, you know, peaky car to drive. Yeah. It didn't inspire confidence by the drivers, which is worth just as much as, you know, pure downforce is being able to allow your drivers to feel comfortable in, in what they're driving. And so... Right. What's impressive about going from the W13 to the W14, they were still in sort of a halfway house. The W13 had a classical zero-pod design, but the W14 had kind of like a half-pod. So it was halfway between a full side-pod and the extreme zero-pod right. that we saw previously. But it was, it was immediately obvious in Bahrain that that car still didn't have the performance ceiling that was required to catch Red Bull in the current generation. And so they'd immediately started working on what we're calling the W14B with its own wide side pod design. And to be clear, it's not a Red Bull clone. It's not an Aston Martin clone. It's right. not an Alpine clone. Um, right. Not only because there's just mechanical restrictions that prevent it from making exactly that shape anyway, but the reality is Mercedes has to apply the lessons learned by other teams to their own concept and to their own car. So that kind of results in a slightly different machine. But what's impressive about it is that there wasn't a step backwards. I know everyone in the Mercedes, you know, ecosystem wanted to see even more performance out of the car in Monaco and Spain to be challenging Red Bull right away. But the really important thing is that they actually didn't go backwards. And believe it or not, that's a, a much bigger victory in the long term. Yeah, it it, te it really is. So, let, okay, because well, we'll, we'll get to that. All right, so in comparison to what they had prior as they started the season off to what they ended up with now, what is the reality, do you think, that abundant amount of changes put a divot in the cost cap that they're trying to stay under for this season? 
Um, you know, it's it's been said in the past that, you know, Mercedes isn't really back until its rivals start, you know, alleging that they're going to break the cost cap uh, by their changes. Okay. And I think that's kind of where we are. So uh, as if as if if you were looking for what's the, the best possible indicator of what Mercedes's form actually is, it's when their rivals right. start complaining about it. Um, so right. that's, that's a good indication. But no, I mean. Mercedes has been incredibly frugal and incredibly sort of judicious with their uh, cost cap expenditures in the past. Not only have they used as many parts over and over as possible, instead of building new parts, they will heavily and extensively modify existing parts. And in fact, last year, uh, we could see where they would move, you know, for example, the the front wing end plate has a dive plane mm-hmm. on it. They moved it down slightly so that we could actually, you know, it was a performance benefit. But you could actually see the scars of where it used to be. <laughs> you could tell it was, right. it was exactly the same wing. And so they're very experienced and they're very talented at, at making sure that they're using, they're, they're stretching their dollars as much as they can. And I expect that the changes that they made to make the W14B effectively were extreme, uh, not only on the aero side and modifying the engine cover and the side pods, but all of the mechanical internals underneath. I mean, as you might imagine, the zero pod design requires some extreme cooling solutions, not only in terms of where the radiator is replaced and the duct work, but also just mechanically. It's actually, you know, putting it in a place where it actually makes sense. And they had to completely sort of redesign that cooling system for the current setup. So that's part of the reason why it, it took so long to actually be fielded and, and come onto the track. But I think probably the biggest thing is, I like, I like Total Wolf's way of describing this. Okay. E- even if the engineers can't explain in precise language why the zero pod concept wasn't really working the way they wanted to, going to a more traditional side pod eliminates variables. At a minimum, mm. if something is inherently wrong there, even if you can't explain it today, if it's holding you back, changing the side pod to a more conventional design allows you to actually start and say, hey, that's not the problem. Whatever the problem is with our car, that's not it. And then maybe, you know, later on, when you have a very good handle on the rest of the car's performance and its characteristics, maybe you can explore some other more inventive options with side pods. But right now, given that they're trying to move forward, it just made the most sense to go to something more conventional. Okay, so are you on the, are you in the field of people that are 100% the side pods were the problem? Because I'm not in that field. I really believe it was a a contribution of different things from suspension to floor to side pods. I'm not with the group of people that are saying like, it's just the side pods. I think Ferrari kind of proved that that can't be just the case. You can't just change side pods and think that things are going to drastically improve. I think that uh, the combination of changes that Mercedes made to try to accompany and complement each other is where, why they are where they may be right now, which is hopefully on the upward swing. So what do you think? So obviously what I always hear is, is one of these two possibilities. It's not the side pods at all, or it's all the side pods. And the reality is both of those are incorrect. Right? It, it, it's suggested by Mercedes several times and to their fans that the side pods aren't the problem. It's not the side pods. Don't worry about them at all. But they have to be a critical component of the performance. I mean, yes, the underfloor of these current 22 or post-22 ground effect cars right. definitely produces uh, the majority of the downforce. They're sort of more three-dimensional. You get significantly more suction underneath these uh, floors than they did in the past. There's no question that the under uh, the underfloor is a critical part of that. However, the underfloor works in conjunction with the rest of the car. It depends on what mm. the, the edges of the floor look like. It depends on 
the extent and quality of the clean air you're trying to deliver to the diffuser and to the back of the car. And guess what? The side parts are a critical factor in that. So it simply isn't a situation where you can ignore the importance of the side pods, even if you don't want to you know, prioritize them as a primary factor. Okay, that's fine. Right. But they might be, you know, number two or number three. I mean, I know if you suggest that there's, oh, there's no performance difference between this current side pod design and the previous one, even if you think that's true today, one of them could have a higher performance and development potential, which seems to be this downwashing side pod concept that was sort of started by Red Bull and, as you said, even Ferrari is, is going towards that direction now. One thing I will say about the big upgrade was that obviously it wasn't just the side pods that changed. It was the front suspension that changed to have a more, we call it anti-dive geometry. Seems to have much better platform control for the aerodynamics. And it's something that Red Bull really went extreme with, not only in their current car, but in their previous car. But regarding Ferrari, Ferrari is currently experiencing what Mercedes feared. (laughs) What, What Mercedes feared was, and this was a thing that kept them from switching concepts earlier, they feared that instead of their new designs going forward, they would actually go backwards, right? Because even if you have all the, you know, eye-watering performance numbers in, in CFD in the wind tunnel, that's just not the track. It's, there's a correlation re- required there to actually get on-track performance, right. and sometimes it doesn't really work. And so what Ferrari seems to be finding, based on the latest um, articles that I've read, and again, they had a, a strange weekend to begin with anyway. Leclerc seems to have seemed to have some mechanical problems that they didn't have time to isolate in the back end of his car. And there are some drastic pace issues in the Spanish Grand Prix itself, which we can talk about. But it seemed like the, the reason why Ferrari went for that different side pod design, side pod shift, was it was supposed to be, number one, an immediate performance benefit, Right, but also number two, a higher you know development ceiling for the future, and the thing is, it didn't actually achieve that first requirement. Now, to be clear, Spain is not really the best track for the SF23, according to Carlos Sainz and, and others. It's going to have, right. it's going to expose whatever weaknesses it does have, and tire wear is one of them. But they thought exactly. it was going to be better than it actually ended up being, and so. I think, as I said before, it's very easy to get caught up in the the romance and the the benefit of actually having a race weekend that was so good for Mercedes. You know, P two, P three, the only car that could beat them was was Verstappen, and they actually passed the Red Bull on track. You know, to, and finished in front of them, which is the first time it happened any time by any car this season. But to me, that's actually not as critical as the fact that they okay. didn't go backwards. Because if you did have a problem. Spain was going to expose it for sure. Right, right. That okay. So you just kind of hinted to something that I was going to get to. So in practice, in qualifying, well, mainly FP3, I believe <clears throat> they were running two different variations of the SF23. Carlos was in, I believe, the updated variation, and Charles was in the previous. Correct. Yeah, it was actually they actually only did it in uh, in FP1. You know, by FP1. by by FP2, both cars were actually on on the same specification and then they were both okay. on on it in uh in fp3 and qualifying as well so so on fp1 is where we saw that difference in where they were very excited about the speed difference between carlos and charles so what happened what happened between that and then they went to the new one and it just seemed like things really just weren't there to me it was just, to me it was like 
I don't want to call it normal, but to me it was just like these are the stumbling blocks that you're going to run into with a new platform that you're just trying to come out with. They're going to run into these problems. Ferrari's been running into problems, but I'm not indicting them now on the new platform. I'm just saying that this is new. They're going to have to get a handle on it. They're bringing it just now, but, you know, seems like many other people just like, yo, it just fit. It just it's not going to work at all. Yeah, well, that's what makes the situation so strange is that uh, just, you know, subjectively, the scale of Ferrari's changes to their design were smaller than the scale of the changes that were made by Mercedes to their design, and yet they're actually having more problems than Mercedes is having. And that, that That's a drastic situation to, to find themselves in. Regarding the top speed numbers, I mean, essentially, there was the idea based on the speed trap data from FP1, Carl Sainz hits up at like, you know, 334 kph in the speed trap, and... Leclerc was only around, you know, 320 or so, and the hypothesis I had sort of floated at the time was that perhaps this new uh, this new design had a bit less drag than the old design, and if they wanted to, you know, preserve that and not really re- reveal their car too early, maybe they could, you know, turn the cars down slightly in, in second practice and, and third practice. I mean, that still may be true, but the reality is that the drivers were dealing with such extreme issues with tire warm-up and, and balance that almost negated any benefit that they would have otherwise. I haven't gone back and checked what the top speed numbers were from the race itself or for qualifying, but okay. they were they were up there around 330 for both cars. Um, so I think the, the biggest thing about Ferrari is, are they able to actually keep the tires in? Right, Because they actually okay. had fantastic you know uh, qualifying pace. And in fact, given the cool and, and unusual conditions that we saw in qualifying and, you know, there's a lot of rain in the air, the ability to warm up your tires quickly is exactly what you needed for the qualifying. It would give you a fantastic right. qualifying performance. And we saw Alpine and, and McLaren right up there. No one was expecting them to be there. The reason for that is because they warmed up their tires incredibly well. However, with the circuit, uh, you know, the uh, Catalonia Barcelona, and given the circuit changes that we had for this year, removal of the final chicane, it's more high-speed corners, more tire wear, especially that front left, you want the exact opposite in your car for the race. You don't want to put load in your tire. You don't want to add energy to it unnecessarily because you will wear right through uh, the, the canvas. And so the the circumstances which allowed you know Alpine and, and McLaren and Ferrari to an extent to do so well in qualifying and the reverse of that gave George Russell so many problems in, in qualifying his inability to get the tires in the window it helped Mercedes right. tremendously in the race and then we saw you know Ferrari falling back with tire wear problems which we kind of expected you know it wasn't really a surprise but was really a surprise was Aston Martin Aston Martin has been very, very good on tire degradation over the course of the season. They have great, you know, traction outside of um, acceleration zones and, and phenomenal braking, but their tire degradation has really been sort of the, the defining characteristic of the AMR23, and it just seemed okay. like even they could not match the tire degradation performance of Mercedes. So there's definitely right. a number of factors going on here. Obviously, you know, the cynics will say it was track-specific and... You know, we don't know right. yet, and it's true. We don't really know what the performance window of the updated car is, but it was definitely a step in the right direction, and I'm looking forward to the next couple of races to see, you know, where they really are. All right, so I got a, I got a question here. Uh, one question coming from Uno says, when will, when will Mercedes go back uh, their race pace and straight line speed? Yeah, I mean, they're... Their, their race pace is actually was excellent. I mean, their their race pace in Spain was was second only to Red Bull, and being even more precise than that, it was second only to Max. 
right? Because mm. Sergio didn't seem to be able to get the car to window. I mean, remember, this is something that people don't quite get about Formula One is that, yes, even if you have a great car, that's not a guarantee that you're going to be able to derive performance every single lap and every single uh, situation, every single track. You have to be able to unlock the language of that specific car to get the maximum performance out of it. And that's where the driver makes a huge difference. And again, Sergio Perez is an uh, excellent driver. He's, he's an excellent driver, but you know, Max is getting a lot more out of the car than, than Checo right now. So I, I think that there's definitely very good race pace uh, on the Mercedes side. And in terms of their top speed, I think they're kind of in the middle of the, the pack right now. They're not overly okay. slow and they're not overly fast. I think one of the things that is probably helping them with that, they have this very unique these sort of hulking shoulders to their engine cover. You've seen them. I'm oh, sorry. Uh, you've seen them. They, uh, they call them gullies. And essentially, they're designed to help control and guide the losses from the cockpit and the dirty air that comes from that and prevent it from hitting the beam wing and interacting with the rear, rear wing in, a, in an undesirable way. And that also could potentially have some drag reduction characteristics as well. So uh, I'm interested okay. to see how, how that develops. But in terms of top speed, they're sort of right in the middle. One of the reasons why Aston Martin may have also struggled in this past race was they have a drag problem, and you know, McLaren has a drag problem as well. Okay. But the fact that you're now blasting through those final two corners at, at a much higher average speed than you were before okay. means the average speed over the entire straight is, is higher, meaning that the drag effect is going to be higher, meaning that if okay. you have a draggy car, you're going to lose more time proportionally on that straight than you would before the circuit configuration change. And I think that's one of the things that kind of caught out Aston Martin, besides the mm. fact that you're removing a hard braking and a hard acceleration zone uh, at the end of, right. the, of the lap that would have been you know, really good for their car. Damn. Okay, so I got another question. Malachi says, how much do you guys think the top, the top teams, Mercedes, Aston, Ferrari, will close the gap towards Red Bull by 2024 because of the wind tunnel penalty? And I know we spoke to this before that you said people might not are not going to see that if it was to take effect this season more so than next season. So what do you think about that? I mean, there's a, there's a few factors here. First of all, we have to remember that on, I believe, July 1st, um, the aerodynamic testing restrictions are going to be updated. So, for example, Mercedes was third in the Constructors' Championship last year. Aston Martin was seventh. That's kind of what's been giving Aston Martin a huge ability to do a lot of safety testing and it's kind of fueling their, their rise up the grid. Those are going to be updated uh, in in a couple of weeks' time or, or a, few, a month's time, I guess. And essentially, we don't really know yet who's going to be second and who's going to be third in the Constructors' Championship because right. Aston Martin and Mercedes are are very close. In fact, it may end up being Aston Martin that's third in the Constructors' Championship when that resets. So that's definitely going to slightly adjust, you know, how each of those teams is able to sort of make progress with, with Red Bull. But I, I think as far as catching Red Bull, that really isn't the target for this season. The target right. the target is to prevent them from winning every single race. That That is, that is you know, operationally where the, the teams find themselves at this particular point. It is okay. odd that Normally, when you have a regulation change, it's the very first year that has the most dominance from from one team, and then everyone sort of converges over time. Red Bull seems to have taken a further step ahead than they were even last year, um, which suggests that the rest of the field has a lot of work to do. But as far as being able to actually make progress, the end of the season is probably going to be a little bit deceptive because I, I predict that other teams, Ferrari or Aston Martin or Mercedes, will win a race on merit before the end of the season. 
And the reasons for that is, of course, extra testing time, you know, more ability to, to evaluate their own designs and, and bring performance to the cars. And Red Bull is going to suffer from the cost cap infringement from the previous season. And by the way, we haven't even heard if there's any cost cap infringement from 2022. We, right, we don't, we don't right. know yet. We so don't just, know yet. I mean, that, that could change the landscape tra- Everything. dramatically. Right. Um, but, but the most important thing is that because Red Bull has produce such an excellent car and because they've you know created so much performance deficit to their, their rivals they can stop working on this car pretty early and still guarantee that they're going to be able to win the championship and so if they strategically choose to prevent themselves from you know spending every possible you know dollar or pound on the current car and they shift to the 2024 car early that leaves them slightly vulnerable in the back end of the season but at the same time, they will start the next season extremely strong. Extremely strong. And even, even when we saw, you know, the the parade of car crashes in Monaco, where we saw mm. so many floors for the first time. You know, Red Bull, Mercedes, you know, Ferrari, um, and we were comparing and Williams. You know, this past weekend, uh, I think Mercedes probably got an unfair amount of uh, flack right. looking at their floor. Everyone was complaining how how simple it is, and then everyone saw the Williams floor, and then yeah. it was a completely different story. <laughs> But, but what, I, what I'll say, what I'll say about that is, you know, even all the things that we look at for a modern underfloor that's you know a high level development, you know, yeah. forward facing steps, backward facing steps, three dimensional geometries, you know, the you know, complex shapes that Red Bull has, all the things that we were starting to see other teams do with their floors, Red Bull did first anyway. Yeah. They were already setting the trend for that direction, you know, they last were. year, and more importantly, we believe that Red Bull is going to bring an entirely new floor to either Canada or Silverstone or one of the next few races. So, yeah. you know, once you derive a competitive advantage early in in the year or early in a regulation change, if you're smart about it and you're not standing still, there's a way to preserve that advantage the entire time, regardless of what other people do. But granted, the cost cap will help everyone else and it will make things a bit easier. But, you know, fundamentally, Red Bull is in a very strong position right now. Okay. Box Office Ham says, and he didn't pose this as a question, but I'll ask a question. I believe Mercedes was overconfident with how much they understood these regs, and they thought they could go the hardest route and still win. Had they gone traditional way right from 2022 start, he probably believes they would have done better. Do you honestly believe that it was more of a confidence ego thing off the jump, or do you think it was... We are, we're in here. We've always made everything else work. It's challenging. We're going to overcome this challenge. And they realize, yo, whatever it is, this challenge is a puzzle that we can't solve. We need to switch directions, though. Do you think it was more of a confident ego? Do you think it was just they gave themselves so much amount of time, even if it was to a fault? And then they realize we've been great all this time with solving problems. But this problem is a bit harder and may take a lot longer than we think to solve. Yeah, I feel like this is a really good example of a wider trend in in human experience. Some people think that intelligence or or smartness is just a a single universal construct. If you're good at doing math problems, you're obviously good at doing poetry and everything else. Some people are just, you know, on a different level. Excuse me. Sorry. Uh, Some people are just on a 
different operating plane. They just do everything incredibly, but it really isn't like that. And engineering is kind of the same way. Just because you've developed the tools and, and skills and correlation, you have the databases to build a really fantastic car in a specific regulation set, that doesn't guarantee that it's going to be exactly the same for the next regulations. I mean, right. as I mentioned before, the underfloor is totally different. The aerodynamics of these cars are totally different. Even if you have a, a wonderful buildup of, of correlation data for how a front wing works that has like outwashing guide vanes and a short you know, end plate and everything else, these are different vehicles. These are different vehicles with different aerodynamic properties, and they actually make different demands of the tools and methods that you're already using. So there actually isn't any guarantee that you're going to be able to replicate the performance. And in fact, if you go back and think about how complex this was, not only did Mercedes have high confidence in their car, but remember, in the end of 2021, they were in the thick of a, of a dramatic title fight, and they actually stopped developing their 2021 car specifically to put energy towards 2022 and Red Bull didn't do that in the same way and yet and yet it was actually Red Bull who came out of the gates you know dominating uh, with their early version of the car and to be clear everything is just theory until a car hits the track you may think you have the best design you may think you understand the everything about this and have explored the regulations to the degree possible but you don't find out for sure until you actually drive the car because you have models and you have expectations of what those models will tell you but all the models are wrong it's just that it's just that some of them are less wrong okay that's that's how i would that's how i would that's how i would give my variation of george box's famous quote that you know all, all models are wrong and some are useful my version is all models are wrong but some of them are, are less wrong and Yes, ego is definitely a part of that. I mean, we can tell that Mercedes was supremely confident in their zero pod design. How do we know that? Because they brought an entirely fake side pod design to the first test, <laughs> right? I mean, there, there, there's yeah. no, there. I mean, there's no way that if you have even a, a hint of doubt in the engineering work that you would do, that you would waste three, point. four days of testing on a concept that isn't even, or a side pod design, to be clear, um, that isn't even your real car. And so the fact that they were so secretive about that is an indication that they thought they were going to decimate the world. And to be honest, the porpoising problem actually made things worse, Mm. worse than we already know. Obviously, we know that the porpoising, you know, held back some of their performance and they had issues with it, you know, Right. right from the beginning. But the truth is, the porpoising issue seemed to be something that you could point to and say, aha, that's the reason why we're losing six tenths. That's the reason why we're losing so much time. As soon as we fix this porpoising problem, you know, we'll be cooking with gas, so to speak. <laughs> and the reality is their W13 car, as they designed it, was like peeling back the layers of an onion. They fixed the porpoising problem and they still had a problem with bottoming. They had issues mm-hmm. with their rear suspension, not being able to, you know, increase the ride height enough to be able to, to have a, a quality ride. I mean, they almost yeah. broke Lewis Hamilton's back because Bad. of things that they were trying to do. I mean, if, if, if the car didn't have any porpoising, you would have the immediate benefit of just being faster. But but you'd also have the secondary benefit of actually realizing, oh, wait, the problems with this car are actually much deeper than just a, a porpoising issue. And as I said before, right. I, I want to give Mercedes credit and I want to give the engineering team their credit to be able to recognize that a shift in direction was necessary, not letting ego get in the way further and making right. a bad problem even worse. And as I said, 
There was every possibility and every risk of making a massive change to their design concept, putting the car on the track and going backwards. And you know what? That would have had to have been something they'd have to live with, regardless of whether or not it hurt at the time, because it would allow them to eventually get in the right direction. The fact that they've done so well with such a big change is evidence that they are the real threat to Red Bull in the current Mm. situation. I think, you know... There are many ways in which we can parse the, the races that we've seen thus far and make informed predictions about what we're going to see. But as far as I'm concerned, Mercedes is a team that has shown the most threat to Red Bull. Yes. Red, Red Bull has been joking about Aston Martin, saying, oh, it would be nice to you know see Aston Martin up there occasionally. And it's a, it's a green Red Bull and jokingly saying how it's similar <laughs> and all this, but... You're not making those jokes about Mercedes. Mercedes, right. <laughs> I, I think I think what's impressive is, you know, given the years of domination that they had and given how uh greedy, frankly, uh Lewis Hamilton and the team has, has been with with, with uh with winning, even though they've been out of the fold for a year, a year and a half and haven't really been, you know, competing at the front, they're still the team everyone fears. Lewis Hamilton True. is still the driver that they all fear. And so I'm very much waiting to see what they actually come up with in the, the next set of updates. That is true. Okay, we got this one. Wiry Supreme says, how did the Ferrari hiring? Because we know Elliot, Allison, that that organizational and uh, partnership, that change as far as the people that are employed there of, may have indeed been another part of why Mercedes is successful, that personnel change. Wiry Supreme says, how did the firing and hiring of Ferrari team principal culture, has it had an impact on their long-term success? And do you see Charles Leclerc leaving due to instability within the organization? Well, first of all, regarding the personal changes at Mercedes and the success that they've had recently, look, everyone knows I'm a big James Allison fan. I, I love yeah. you know his, his work and his way of explaining things. Uh, he's one of the most articulate and smart people I know, but he's not Superman. I, I can, I can, I can assure you many of the changes that you've seen in the current car design were actually approved of and signed off on under the watch of Mike Elliott. It, it is right. true that Mike Elliott's legacy at Mercedes is going to be the zero pot design, but he, even in before preseason testing or, or during preseason testing had mentioned that there was a major upgrade coming he to did. the design direction of the W14 that it's going to be, it was supposed to be an Imola. We didn't race an Imola, so we didn't see it. I imagine that would have been a great looking car back then. But but we can't universally blame Mike Elliott for all of Mercedes' problems, and we can't universally give credit to James Allison for fixing them to where they currently are because there's there's a non-zero overlap there, number one, mm-hmm. with their timing. And also, it's a team effort. Everyone's kind of working together. So that's definitely right. one note I want to say about Mercedes and their personnel changes. Regarding Ferrari and their historical issues, I mean their drought of championships that they're experiencing now is actually rivaling the length of time that they had before Schumacher joined. There was a long period of like, you know, 20 years or something or some extended period of time or 15 years, I don't remember. Um, I think when, it's 15. 15 years. When they weren't winning anything for a very long time and Michael Schumacher came and sort of raised them from this uh, the depths of, of that mediocrity. And they're starting to approach that same time now as far as uh, championship trouts since King Raikkonen's 2007 uh, championship victory. So, uh, I mean, they're, what I, what I, you know, I, they're not there yet, but they're, they're getting closer than they're anyone really, really wants. And they have engineering talent. You know, they have uh, so much data. But sometimes it feels like, and again, this, this is not a, 
I don't want to be overly generalizing here, but everyone okay. seems to agree that there's a cultural issue with Ferrari, not an Italian culture, but a Ferrari right. culture. Like Ferrari culture. If, if that if that makes sense, there's definitely a distinction there, and I think Ferrari internally recognizes this because this was one of the first you know uh, promotions to team principal that didn't come from inside the organization. There you go with Fred you know, Domenicali, and we think about um, Arriva Benny, Arriva we think about you know. Uh, Mattia Bonanno. I mean, these people were sort of in the organization, and in fact, Mattia was, uh, you know, technical Shit, genius, one of their technical yeah, heads. Yeah, I'm about to say Mattia. And, he was there for a while. Mattia was there. You know, uh, he had some some fun videos with Michael Schumacher. I'll share with you later that are quite fun. All right, but just to give you a scale for how old it was. <laughs> he had short hair at that time, so it's just, it was a totally different guy. But but no, Mattia is a, is a great engineer. And he's been around for a long time, and. He was trying to do the best that he could with the with the the team that he was he was you know uh, heading, but ultimately Ferrari seemed to think that they need to go in a new direction. And there are certain aspects of Vasseur's tenure that I think are refreshingly good. He's very funny, number one, uh, which isn't a requirement of a team principal, but he, he's he's got a, a great sense of humor. But he's also very direct and very to the point, and seems to be willing to call a spade a spade in, in most situations. I hope he's able to retain that. I hope he's able to okay. admit when things aren't quite going correctly, because I'm starting to see a little bit of that old Ferrari culture creeping in, which I don't like, which is to say, for example, prior to the Barcelona upgrade being shown, Fred had said, "Well, this isn't a concept change. This isn't a fundamental change." But right. if you, I mean, if you look at the actual, you know, hardware that they brought to Barcelona, yes, there's some subjective definition of what defines a concept change. But it's a pretty big difference. I mean, the the side pod shape is in, oh, is, yeah. is quite different, and and the back end of it's also quite different. So, I, I think that Ferrari is in a position where they're not dead in the water yet. But they're having a bit more struggles with their upgrade than I think they were anticipating. And as I said before, the Barcelona circuit, the Spanish GP, especially with the updated layout, was going to be a bit tough for them because, ironically enough, the F175 last year's car probably would have done better uh, at this particular Ooh. circuit. But 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 I'm not saying that it's you know it's a global loss. What I'm suggesting is the specific areas of car performance that Ferrari decided to focus on for the SF23 versus the F175 are, are different. And a lot of that is actually reaction to Red Bull and their outrageous top speed last year. So, you know, maybe you give up a little bit of downforce for the high-speed corners, but you gain some top end. You know, one of the side effects of that could be tire wear. So it just seems to be something that they're dealing with. I think they also brought a new rear suspension uh, to Barcelona. They're limited to the maximum changes they can make because they didn't have... Um, the cost to be able to make a whole new gearbox and everything, a gearbox casing. But I think there's going to be some more changes coming along the line, and I, I haven't you know, given up on Ferrari at all. But regarding Leclerc, I mean, it's hard to believe how long he's been at that team. I mean, he's been there since you know 2019. And yeah. there, there will come a point where his assessment is that Ferrari won't get it together fast enough. I mean, maybe they'll get it together, but not in the time when, when he's there. I could understand the idea of him going to another team, but realistically, where would that be? Where's he going to go? Right. And they, we, you know, Red Bull, despite their slight asymmetry in driver performances, is a, is a very strong team. When Max doesn't win, Checo has a, a good chance to win most of the time. Yeah. Mercedes has 
you know, hands down, the best driver lineup on the grid. They are fighting each other for the wins. If they get a competitive car, they're going to run the table. Aston Martin is mm. kind of a wild card right now because Facts. they're really running a, a one-and-a-half-man team, unfortunately, it seems. So I, I don't think it's likely uh, that Lance Stroll will be leaving that team. But the conversations are starting to get... Loud. Oh, they're getting louder and louder. They're getting louder over time. Uh, that at some point, this inherent conflict between, well, let's just call it what it is. It's nepotism. Uh, there you go. <laughs> and 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 uh, you know, financial and competitive success is going to be an issue. Now, to be clear, Lance Stroll is not a Nicholas Latifi. He is not a Nikita Mazepin. He's a good driver. He right. used to be a great driver for a midfield team. It's just that Aston Martin's progress and how good that car is be shown to be is starting to make him the weaker link in that situation. So, and what did you say about drivers? You I mean, said it very well before. I mean, they 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 do make the difference, and they can. I mean, again, everyone likes to think the classic example of this is, is Lewis Hamilton and the the most dominant heirs of Mercedes. Everyone would just you know dismiss all of that performance and say, oh, he just had the best car. He'd be miles ahead. First of all, if he had the best car, you'd win every race weekend if there was no retirements, and that never happened. You know, pace fluctuates yeah. inherently, but you have to be able to unlock it. I mean, there there is a language to each of these cars that requires you to be able to speak it, to get the tires in the window and the brakes in the right temperature, and to be able to actually optimize a full race weekend. It's not easy, and the driver does make the difference. Oh, all right, so... Akandu says, Mercedes, now I'm going, I'll also answer this, what I think, and you can right off the back freestyle it. Is Merck about two races away from being neck and neck with Red Bull, considering only being three to five tenths off? I think more races than that. I don't think we're going to see that by Canada and then Austria. I don't, but what do you think? Because you're the technical mind. So there's no question that the upgrades that Mercedes brought were a, a, a massive uh, sort of improvement, if not in pure lap time, in terms of giving the drivers more confidence to be able to actually, you know, chuck the car in and, and not have these leery oversteering moments that cost you lap time and, and make the, the tire degradation worse. They have a high degree of confidence. And then also, this is the earliest version of their new concept, iteration zero, iteration one, iteration two. Sure. They're going to be building on this new direction every single race. And so, yes, they will be finding lap time and they will be finding pace. But if you look specifically at the Spanish Grand Prix, yes, the upgrades were effective, but there were some circuit-specific things that definitely helped Mercedes. And also, the ambient conditions were potentially helping them uh, as well with the cooler temperatures. And so, as I said before... The, the very same characteristic of their new car design, especially that front suspension design, I mentioned that it's an anti-dive geometry where the the pickup points for that upper wishbone, you know, instead of being like level in a vertical sense, they're right. angled they're pretty also, aggressively. Right. And that changes the reaction forces in the suspension. It tends to give you better platform control to prevent the car from, you know, diving and, and pitching, but also it gives you slightly better tire preservation in the current generation of cars, which is harder because it makes it harder to warm up the tires during during qualifying. But that same feature um, that hurt George Russell in qualifying helped Mercedes tremendously during the race. And so that combined with the specific characteristics of Spain definitely gave them a very positive result. But there are going to be different circuits at which Red Bull is, is just going to be better. Canada is a very strange one because Canada... It's a hybrid. 
it's it's a more of a street circuit. It really does um, emphasize a, a bit of error efficiency because there are quite a lot of straights, but there's some really hardcore braking in Canada, you know, over and over again. And so the top speed advantage that Red Bull has in general will be a, a big factor in Canada. And if you're suffering with, you know, uh, the amount of downforce needed to have high performance in sort of the high speed corners, that's not going to hurt you as, as, as much in, in Canada. So... I feel like we'll need at least a couple of races to figure out where Mercedes really, you know, really is. As I said before, I don't believe that they are in any sense going to be um, beating Red Bull reliably, you know, for many, many races over the course of the season. But I do think that they okay. will beat them a couple of times. And as I said before, and this is this is the perfect way to crystallize the concept. This is why you should be excited. All right. Mercedes almost finished second in the Constructors' Championship last year, and they won a race last year with right. what is, by their own admission, the wrong car concept. Mm. Imagine how good they could do with the right car concept. Right? Uh, imagine how fast they could actually be if they were not getting in their own way. Barcelona is evidence that it could actually be very fast indeed. So who's to say what the actual performance potential of their car is? And I think the other point that I kind of want to emphasize here, and this is something that is often lost, look at how dominant Red Bull is. Look at how impressive their performance has been over the course of the season so far. And we say, well, the car must be perfect. I mean, it's it's dominating everything. The car must be perfect. And the reality of the situation is it's, it's not. Red Bull themselves are currently working on how to make it even faster next season. And by that yeah. definition... If Mercedes and Aston Martin and other teams are also exploring this design space in their own way and taking their own path, they're going to find things, too, that maybe Red Bull hasn't seen. So it, 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 by what I mean by that is it's not necessarily the case that just because you started behind someone that you're automatically going to be behind forever. I mean, that definitely is most probably what's going to happen, but it's not a guarantee. So I, I definitely think that Mercedes has the potential to be the biggest threat to Red Bull long-term, I don't think it's going to be two races before they're the, the real threat. There may be one or two really great races, and I think that you know people who know uh, Lewis Hamilton is a, a monster around the, the Montreal circuit for whatever reason, probably just his being aggressive on the brakes, but they could definitely be competitive there. We're going to have to go to a few other circuits, you know, Silverstone, Red Bull yeah. Ring, to really get a, a better feel for where right. Mercedes really is. Blue Diva has a very good question I think that you may like to answer. It says, would like to know if Bryson thinks that the Red Bull has shown its full pace in Max's car and why Perez is so off compared to Max's. So, you know, there there is a feeling or a notion going around that it seems like every time Perez starts to win, all of a sudden pace falls off or he's inconsistent or things. So, uh, coming from a technical aspect, because that's what you're great at, I'll give my aspect. It is very, it is very suspicious. It is something that people look at, and it seems to happen more often than not. So either Perez is one of these people that winning makes him so anxious that he gets in his own way because people get overly excited sometimes and then they tend to get in their own way and then they fail before they get to the finish line i don't know if you've seen it but there's a meme a guy's running track and he throws the deuces and falls flat on his damn face or either perez has locked himself into a situation with red bull where he can do nothing else but be a number two driver in the moment that he begins to show that he wants more than that which he said he wanted more than that things start to kind of fall apart what is your perspective on that 
I think we're not giving enough credit to how variable the car designs are and how particularly they respond to specific types of driving styles. You know, Sergio Perez is, is, a, is a great driver. He's actually one of the better drivers than he has been for, for several years. And people seem to think all the drivers drive these cars the same. You just turn the wheel, hit the brakes, hit the accelerator, and just drive the car. But there are subtle differences here. You know, how you take the corner, do you square it off? Is it more of a V-shape? You know, how do you uh, progress when you apply the brake pedal? I mean, all, how are you on, on throttle application on corner exits? These things are critical to the performance of the cars, and they are different between different people. So I, I think we have to just take a step back and realize that Adrian Newey you know, designs incredible machines, but they tend to be very you know particular about how they're driven. And some drivers respond to that, and some drivers don't. You know, I mean, he used to dr- build these short wheelbase, high rake monsters that were super on the front end and the only driver that seemed to be able to be able to exploit that well was 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 Max Verstappen and that certainly isn't the type of car that Sergio Perez uh, liked but over time he's gotten a bit better but Sergio's particular uh, skills and especially with throttle application which makes him so good around street circuits can be a problem around some some other circuits and so I wouldn't even necessarily put this towards you know, nervousness or challenges okay. or anything else like that with Sergio Perez. It's just that he is a particular type of driver with a particular type of skill set and profile, let's say, and the car needs a certain type of profile and what it actually needs can change from day to day and from race to race. Again, if you can't get the tires in the window, you can't warm them up. Again, this this tire yeah. preservation of the Red Bull has been incredible all season, but that makes your life harder in qualifying. His right. issues in Monaco, arguably... And certainly in Australia, uh, and 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 also in this most recent race, um, there he has difficulty in, in warming up the tires, and so that's actually one of the things that's kind of held him back, you know, in in, in the races themselves. When you're asking, have we seen the real pace of the the RB19? Um, we've seen flashes of it. Okay. I, I was listening to a podcast recently uh, where the pace that Max Verstappen was showing in Barcelona was described as being like sarcastic, <laughs> right? <laughs> like he, he would be setting fastest lap, you know, over and over again, each lap, fastest lap and, and, you know, clearing the field by quite a lot. And right. then suddenly out of nowhere, it goes seven tenths quicker but just because he could. I mean, there's, there's clearly more pace there. And so we definitely haven't seen the full potential of the car at that particular race weekend. The few times when we've really seen it, you know, really seen what that particular car could do is in situations where, either by qualifying or by penalty or whatever, mm. Perez is actually in front of Verstappen and is racing. Right. So, for example, in Miami or, if, for example, in uh, Jeddah, when, when Perez was in front and Max was trying to catch him up, that was really a better example of when we're seeing what the real pace advantage of the cars is. And it's still like, you know, 30 seconds, you know, you know 40 seconds oh, at that time. But, but, but to be clear, you know, to be clear, it was only 20 seconds or 24 seconds um, to Mercedes in, in Spain. So even though the advantage, you know, again, there's more pace that we could have, you know, gotten out right. of it in Red Bull, but maybe Mercedes had more pace too. They just were just bringing the car home. What, what I would say is that we don't really know what the upper limit of the, the RP19 is, but it's at a point now where it's an extreme competitive advantage. And I expect that car to be strong everywhere. And there are certain other places, other cars that I expect certain cars to be, or I, there are certain other cars that I expect to have a benefit at certain tracks, but okay. I expect the RP19 to be good at every track. And the final thing I'll say about that is I've been around the sport long enough and I've watched enough drivers to know 
that Max Verstappen is not just fast because of the car. Right? I, he, he is a, a very talented driver. His real strength was probably his race pace, his ability to deliver a fast lap after a fast lap during the race. It's not, it's not, it's not as strong in qualifying as like a Leclerc or a Hamilton, I don't think. Um, but he's learning how to get better over time, which is probably the most scary thing that people need to keep in mind. But he, he's unlocking the car performance right now, and I'm sure they're able to set it up to, to suit him and things, but you still have to do the job on the day. Um, sure. That's not easy to do. I'm very much looking forward to a resurgence of some of the other teams to be able to actually compete with Red Bull on a more right. reliable basis. I know many people were up in arms about my own discussion of the turn one incident with signs and, and, and Verstappen. Oh, um, yeah. And again, there's nothing necessarily untoward there with regard to, you know, signs backed out and, you know, you know, Max was able to take the corner and that seems to be fine. But the concern that I have is the way that that incident unfolded. Yes. Signs backed out of the corner, but if he had decided to continue staying in the corner because he was, you know, pretty head in the in the braking zone, there's no mm-hmm. way the way that Max had positioned his car, there was no for a, there's no way for him to react to the possibility that signs would take the corner. Max sort of went all the way to the edge of the road. And so the reason why I mention that is because eventually it will not be signs trying to overtake him, it will be Alonso or it'll be Hamilton oh, or Russell or, or Ocon. Oh, Especially right. Ocon. Ocon, right? <laughs> I mean, if, if we know one thing about Esteban Ocon is that his his, do it. his, his default uh, modality is is elbows out, and so right. the reason why I even mention these things is, is not to score points in any objective sense. I just want to understand what the rules are. What can a driver overtaking reasonably be expected to to have as far as being given space in a given situation? Because if there's one thing that you know, Max can really benefit from significantly as far as, you know, raising his game, you know, further than it is, mm. is the ability to wheel race to race in a, in a, in a way that's less, in a way that's less, less, I want to, you got either, you're going to risk your car or your race or you're not. Yeah. yeah I, I understand and, what you're saying. And, wheel to and, wheel to leave that competitive space so we can really see the racing craft between the two drivers in and out. I, and, I and definitely again, want that. The, yes. And, and again, Maybe everything that's being done is going to be within the, the letter of the regulations, and maybe I'm just speaking as a, a fan who just wants to see more racing. I would much rather see a wheel-to-wheel race that lasts for three or four corners than one that is only one corner and almost resulted in a crash. And so perhaps he doesn't have any competitive motivation for doing that, but it would be more it would be more entertaining. This is why I yeah, I mentioned this previously. It's more right. fun. It's more fun for everybody when we leave each other's space, and so those are the on-track battles I enjoy seeing and as the season goes on I think we're going to see a few more of them right I, I'm hoping so because I get excited when we see the, just the change out in qualifying to me the last three qual- like I've been excited about qualifying when I see different drivers just popping in laps popping in laps that's 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 very, that's very fun for me to view that competitive spirit and to see that type of challenging going on and when you don't it's just kind of Man, you know, it's, I want to see different drivers. I want to see different teams on on different weekends have different type of perform. I want to see that. I want to see more than a, two cars and one team racing each other. But the truth is, I'm also not mad at Red Bull for the fact that that is why it is because they've earned through development that although people want to debate the cost cap situation, which is true, yeah, right? Yeah. That that's a legitimate debate, and I I share that myself. But still. The development is real. 
right? Yeah, they, so they actually they made the car. Like right, I, they, we, we could always talk about you know right. where they had more resources than they had available, or but we've seen teams waste resources before. Right. We, we've seen teams at the back of the grid being given tremendous amounts of resources and just going backwards. Score. So regardless, I mean, again. Obviously, if you break the cost cap again, you're going to be in serious trouble. <laughs> Red yeah, Bull, should even, you haven't seen anything yet that happens. But but the, the bottom line is they use the time that they had and they actually produced a fast car. I, I think right. you, you mentioned you know what is it that kind of gets to the the excitement of racing? What what is it that actually makes the race exciting? And if you were to write an equation for it, it's not purely overtakes. It's overtakes with stake. Right? I, I'll give you a perfect mm. example of this. The two races that we've had that have had the most overtakes in like 10 years or maybe like five years were this year and they were Miami and they were Spain. Okay. They were like 50 or 60 overtakes to yeah. two thirds of them, which were actually shown on, 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 uh, on the broadcast. And yet it's not going to go down as, as a classic race as being one of the greatest races ever because there aren't really any stakes. Right. So I, I think, you know, this is aided by the weird quirk that, there were no yellow flags or safety cars or retirements or anything, which kind of spreads things out even more. But I think if we're trying to establish what is it that really inspires us and, and makes us cheer and excited about racing, yes, we do want the ability for cars to overtake each other, but we want the field to be sort of closer as well. And this is the fundamental issue with Formula One is that if you want the best possible racing as far as closeness in, in the field, you would want a spec car. You get one car, everyone has Ooh. the same car, that always gives you the best racing. Look at F2, look at, look at IndyCar, like look at everything. But that's not Formula One. No. That's not what Formula One is about. It is an engineering competition <clears throat> just as much as it is a, a driver competition. And so right. this is the fine line that the sport has been trying to walk for years now. And, and especially since the incredible season or incredible season of 2021, um, they want to be able to have the spectacle of racing be a big part of their, their profile. And Formula One doesn't always lend itself to that. And so they're trying to find a way to get what the fans believe that they want without introducing too much artificiality into it. And so I'm very excited to see how they walk that line. The, the one thing that we must say is if you want to have more sprint races, you know, fine. If you want to have regulations that promote more overtaking, great. The one thing you cannot do is change the rules on the fly in the middle of competition. That That is the... That is the, the line in the sand that we should, should never, ever allow in any circumstance, right. regardless of how boring you think the end of a race will be. Just, just don't do it. Facts. Decide what the rules of competition are, stick by them, and then you know, see how it plays out. Carry them out. We got a couple of super chats. When read those, I'm thinking Mercedes by 083 will really start cutting in the Red Bull's performance gap around Spa. And also... Speaking of Stake, and since Stake is the majority sponsor of Alfa Romeo on the Sarbage Hassie right now, Bryson, do you eat steak? Uh, steak's fine. I mean, what, I, what's I'm, your I'm favorite s- cut? No, I mean, I don't. I don't even know if I eat steak well enough to know if I have a favorite cut. I mean, I, I, I definitely like medium rare. Uh, as, okay, as I have so that's it, your I favorite like temperature. My favorite temperature, but uh, you know, I'm certainly not a connoisseur of, of steaks. But one thing I will say, this is reminding me of um, something that's important to remember. Alfa Romeo is, mm-hmm. is currently the, the sponsor, title sponsor of, of Sauber. That deal is ending at the end yeah, of this is. current year. They're going to actually you know, move to Haas. Haas. So it's going to be Alfa Romeo Haas. And Audi isn't really technically coming in until like 2026. So for those next few years, it's just going to be Sauber, Sauber right. I think, which is, it has been in the which past. It's been, it's, yeah, it's just happened before. 
Yeah, but I'm I'm very much looking forward to how that relationship develops because Sauber is kind of like the perennial underdog team in 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 the sport. They have fantastic aero facilities. They have a great wind tunnel in in Hinwell that's really quite impressive. So the infusion of the money and resources of a, a, a manufacturing juggernaut like Audi really mm. excites me for 2026. And mm. we don't even know what the aero rules are there. So I'm I'm very much looking forward yeah. to that. That's going to be exciting. I'm re- I'm ready for that myself, especially for coming in with Red Bull, all types of situations. We got McLaren. Uh, I know Aston Martin going with the Honda Power. You're like, yeah, there's going to be a bunch of changes that I think should make racing and the sport exciting and what's going to be what week in and week out, and that's what I do hope for. Will has a floor question for you. See if you like this. What are your thoughts on Red Bull's use of vertical kicks on the rear of their floor and how it creates a massive DRS effect along with the beam wing and the rear wing DRS is activated? Yeah, it's actually quite interesting. We talked about this on the most recent Tech Heads episode. So one of the things that Red Bull was known for, even last year, was having fantastic ride control and platform control with their car. They didn't have any real porpoising problems to speak of. It was one of the things that they uh, managed to avoid right from the beginning. And one of the hypotheses as to why they had that was because they had a very gradual smooth kick in a diffuser again for people who don't okay. don't know the floor you can think of as, as a an, a wide opening a very tiny you know s- you know gap in the middle and then a wide opening again at at the back and the bigger you can make the ratio of those two areas you know big to small the more suction you're going to get in that high velocity, you know, low pressure region that gives you more downforce. And so if you can expand the flow on the back end and make it diffuse as much as possible, the result of that is, is creating more, more downforce. And so if you do that in a, in a gradual way and not a sharp, you know, hard corner, it seemed to allow them to have a lower ride height sensitivity to allow them to actually, if they did, you know, bump up and down, it didn't cause so much of a change in the flow structure that it would cause it to stall, which would kick off that porpoising mm-hmm. issue. And so that was the hypothesis last year as to why they were having, you know, a, a much more stable ride. We know part of it's a suspension as well. But when you look at the actual RB19 floor and you look at the shape of their diffuser kick, it's actually sharper again now. And they actually have a, a much harder corner at the beginning of the diffuser than they had previously. Now, again, that will take away some of that benign characteristic of the ride height sensitivity, but it could give you a stronger suction peak. It could give you higher overall downforce. So what that suggests to me is that they understand their concept well enough okay. and are confident enough in their tools to be able to play with fire a little bit, to actually push the design of the floor even harder to get more downforce out of it without actually causing a problem. I I suspect that the floor changes that were made to the edge of the floor for 2023, seemingly for the benefit of other teams, probably helped Red Bull too, Mm. because even even they were able to, you know, push the design of their floor to be a little more aggressive, maybe a little bit more complex, and they wouldn't have to risk the possibility of suddenly coming into a porpoising problem because the floor edges were raised. And to be clear, it wasn't the ride height that was changed. I people always say this and it annoys me. They raised the ride they raised the ride height for twenty twenty three. It's like no they they changed the geometry of the floor edge in the coordinate system of the car. That coordinate system bumps up and down just like, you know, a car does when it's riding. You can right. set your ride height to whatever you want. But they just changed the rel- the relative position of the floor edge compared to other parts of the car. So yeah, I mean Red Bull definitely has a, a more complex shape uh, to their diffuser kick. Yeah. And in the, the diffuser itself, I mean there certainly is this, some idea that 
given the three dimensionality of the roof and the sides of the of the tunnels working together that they're able to you know there's vortices you know flying back underneath the floor that are helpful in certain situations to create downforce but also have entrainment properties of how they pull air in from other places and it seems like confining them better with these three-dimensional shapes could be a way to um, stabilize them and prevent them from bursting as they go uh. downstream and so if you have a very you know strong handling of that and you understand it well you know, I mean, you can do some more fancy things and get more downforce out of the car. This is why I say that, yes, we look at the fastest team and it's an incredible car, but it could be faster. There are mm. always things that you can do to make a car faster. And if you, if there were no regulations, they would build the car so fast that no human could drive it. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. <laughs> All right. So a big shout out Malachi for the Super Chat. Question for both. First, I'll answer Mary Beanie because she has a question for me. She said, Jay, will you finally believe me that Mercedes is back on track with the W14B spec and fully dialed in for 2024? I don't disbelieve you. I do believe you, but I need a bit more evidence for myself to say that that is factual. Uh, I'm not one race. Definitely why we enjoyed it. And it was good to see finally the sun peak above the mountain that shaded Mercedes for at least two years, two seasons now. But I need to see a few more races to know that they are back on track. If you think about Mercedes and where they've come from, that's a big gap from where they were to where they are now. And that's a that's a far distance to travel. Not saying they can't make it, not saying they can't make it fast, but I need to see a bit more before I say that, yeah, they're back on track. But I do believe you, Mary Beanie. You've been right thus far. I don't disbelieve you. Malachi <laughs> has a question for both of us, Bryson. He says, what do you think other than Lewis can challenge or beat Max over the course of a whole season if given similar or the same machinery? So what driver or drivers would you say right now currently on the grid would be able to challenge and rival Max to that magnitude given the same machinery? Well, you know, unfortunately at this point, it's, it's definitely not Sergio Perez. Um, we're already sort of seeing, we're already sort of running that experiment out That's in real fact. time now. Right. Sergio is a, is a great driver, but it, it, it seems like over the course of a season at more normal tracks, it probably isn't going to work out. I hope he does well, um, but it probably isn't going to work out. I bought a sombrero to celebrate too. It's just not on. <laughs> I'm sure he's got a few more wins for sure this season. Okay, um, good, good. But, but, but honestly... So there's no question in my mind that, that Lewis Hamilton has what it takes even Thanks. now, you know, even after going through the, frankly, emotional trauma uh, inflicted upon him in Abu Dhabi 2021, even going through that and recovering from that, he still got what it takes to develop a car and, and pull out qualifying laps that are excellent. And his race pace is also outrageous. But Thanks. I think people need to understand that George Russell is someone who really shouldn't be underestimated. I think many people, you know, several of them irrational. Uh, many people would like to believe that Lewis Hamilton isn't that great. They just want to say he's just been so lucky. He's had this incredible car all the time. And he's not really that good. And, right. and look at George Russell. Look how well George Russell's doing. Isn't that, isn't that evidence that Lewis Hamilton isn't as good as we all think he might be? <laughs> and, and, the, and the thing is, I think people are reading that the wrong way. Okay. Yes, I'm sure Lewis didn't love having to drive the W13 monster, essentially, mm. for some time. But people don't think, I don't think people really understand how good George Russell actually is. He's in the same car as Lewis, and he's really, really good. Think about this. In, in the year 2020, when Lewis Hamilton caught COVID before the second race in, in Bahrain, 
Boom. George was given almost zero preparation for, for that particular race. He didn't even physically fit in the car the because car. engineers are chasing, you know, milligrams of, of weight. And so you don't make the chassis any bigger than it has to be. So he barely even fit in, in Lewis's car. And he, Dang, you know, essentially almost outqualified Valtteri and would have beaten him if not for some very for odd and unlucky things that happened in the race. So yeah. George Russell is extremely good. So I think that he is definitely someone who could also take on Max in, in uh, equal machinery. We got to go to that too. Well, wheel to wheel. We got a glimpse of wheel to wheel. Of we, we did. We Russell did see that could, last year yeah. to to degree. And, and George has, has shown he's very much willing to take on Max and not be right. You know, bu- not be bullet, isn't, bullet isn't the right word, but submissive. to be in, influenced by uh, those types of decisions. Um, so he's definitely shown me that he's willing to go wheel to wheel. As far as the other drivers in the new crop uh, of, of drivers, you know, Charles Leclerc is also very good. He's, I would argue he's better than Max Verstappen in qualifying. Uh, Leclerc mm. is, but, but arguably, arguably the reason why he is, is because he's pushing too hard. And the one thing that would prevent Charles from being a threat to Max Verstappen over the duration of a championship is Leclerc just doesn't, he is not consistent enough. Now, yeah. again, I don't want to completely, you know, slate him. He's a great driver. And even even Max made mistakes, you know, last year. He spun in Hungary and went in the gravel in Spain last year. And he went in the grass in Australia this year. I mean, he, he makes mistakes too, yeah. but he makes recoverable mistakes. Leclerc makes mistakes in which he's in the wall. And so I think that if Leclerc was able to improve that a bit, he'd be a better chance. But the other person that's on the in the grid right now who could more than take on Max and equal machinery is Alonso. And I, Fernando is obviously he's fully embraced the the villain character, which is which is fine, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But but he's he's demonstrating now and to a degree last year as well that he still is just as competitive and, and hungry as ever. Not only is it the case that his performance this year calls into question the career of Lance Stroll, but his performance is so good, it's actually casting light retrospectively to Sebastian Vettel. To, to, to a degree, it's, it's actually questioning what Sebastian Vettel was doing. Vettel we thought doing. Seb was having a pretty good year last year, um, you know, or a reasonably good year against Lance, but seeing what Fernando was doing to him, I mean, we all thought that the injuries that Lance sustained in the off season yeah. that were, there was, you know, that was the, the problem. And he was having some difficulty in that first race, but as he healed up and he would, you know, get closer to Fernando as, as the season goes on and he, you know, got healthier, but the reverse is true. The, the reverse is true. It seems like as time has gone on, Fernando's, Fernando's gotten further and further away from Lance oh, because he's more comfortable with the car. He knows how to extract the most out of it. So in cars that were similarly paced, I, I would say Fernando, I would say Lewis Hamilton and I'd say okay. George Russell are the people to most keep an eye out for. The, the time will come when Fernando and Lewis retire. As far as the, the new drivers who could take on Max, I think George is the one. Okay. All right. And Freak Dogs agrees with you with his super chat. He said, I would say George, but that's me. He also says, George said fitting into Lewis's car was like being in a bathtub. George's shoes was a long, was also a size too small when in the race, Lewis place. All right. And then Walter Shaver says, Lewis seemed pretty satisfied with the changes in the Spanish GP. Have they resolved the seating issue? Oh, yeah. Well, that's a good question. So, Bryson, I know they talked about that Lewis was saying that one of the disconnects was they were, he was sitting so forward that it just felt like he was on a nose. So there was a little continuity with the back of the car. So have they, do you know, or do you, have you heard anything that they've 
actually adjusted that or is he now still in the same position just with a better car and then eventually maybe that changes or is that something you can't change in the monocoque until like the following season because you did say true technical aspect of a b-spec car is the entire change of the chassis and monocoque so is that something that they can't do this season or what no they really can't change the monocoque and i mean i mean i guess okay. to be clear the i guess in principle you could change the relative position of where the front suspension is in relation to the monocoque without changing the seating position. That could kind of help, but I still don't think they mm-hmm. did that. I mean, they were so focused on introducing the anti-rate geometry in the front that they really can't move it any far forward. It would be off the car. Um, <laughs> so, so no, the, the seating position issue is, is still there, okay. um, and the, the, the tendency for the car to be sort of on the nose is, is still there, but it's much better now. The car is, is giving a lot more feedback to the drivers that they're they're happy with. One thing I, I, I would say in terms of uh, how we develop these cars and, and what we think they're going to do in the future, we don't really know what the development path is going to be for sure. I mean, we have pretty good ideas about where the teams are going to find lap time, but right. it's not totally clear. There are certain strengths and relative weaknesses that teams have to each other that can change over time. You know, Aston Martin has claimed they're going to bring a big upgrade uh, to the next race or the race after that that will revolutionize their performance characteristic of their car. Maybe, mm. you know, even more downforce and less drag, i.e. better aero efficiency. You know, we don't, we don't really know. So right. where the cars end up, you know, it's just it's not totally clear. Okay. So then, Uno, do you think Lewis will sign a contract with Mercedes, and is he teasing the media with stalling? I I think uh, I, I'll, I'll add to that before you say something. I think Lewis, I think he showed it this before, that he's he doesn't really, at this point in stage of his career, over-concern himself with jumping to sign the contract for the next deal. I think right now he's more focused on the development of the car, where they're going to go, seeing the potential of the team, and then you know we'll get to the contract and the money. I think his career has kind of afforded him a little bit of leeway to kind of – I'm not pressured on that, especially with his – what do you think as far as Lewis in the contractual situation? I mean, first of all, any team that is not actively trying to sign Lewis Hamilton is not really trying to win, mm. realistically. Oh, if, man, if I got to give you, you something for you, that, brother. If you, <laughs> um, you know, someone of his skill set and abilities uh, would be beneficial to any team on the grid, as as wild as it would be to think of, you know, Lewis at Ferrari or even Lewis at Red Bull or something, you know, Red Bull really wouldn't be an entrance just because of, you know, mechanical issues with the way the right. drivers are. They You can't move those people out of position. Um, but any team, you know, would recognize how good Lewis is and they would and they would want him. And, of course, I'm sure there is a tactical element of this as far as negotiating what the price should be in terms of okay. what his contract is and is there an ambassador role for Lewis with Mercedes after the fact in which he would also be doing things for the team. But also, one of the things that I think people aren't paying enough attention to is this pressure, this push to jump ship when things aren't really going well, usually doesn't work out. <laughs> I mean, the, the mm-hmm. career of the career True. of Fernando Alonso is, is the perfect example of this. And <laughs> he is well known for jumping ship when he thinks things are, the grass is greener on the other side. Right. And some, you know, the vast majority of the time it really hasn't worked out, especially not with uh, McLaren in that era. Mm-hmm. But, in this particular case, I mean, if you keep playing the numbers long enough, eventually you'll, yeah, you'll yeah. hit the jackpot. Right. Jackpot, and and he really seems to have done that uh, with Aston Martin. I'm sure he saw some impressive figures from the CFD and everything else. But you know, he's finally got himself in, into a good car, and I feel like with the way Lewis Hamilton is, obviously I can't decide what he will do. But right. if he wanted to go to Ferrari and and you know 
make the Tifosi team LH as well. I mean, that would be kind of fun, honestly. I mean, kind of a, a, a swan song kind of, right. of enter the career. <laughs> Uh, checking off a, a box, a box, that, right? And many people would love to drive for Ferrari. I'm sure it would be fun. You know, his his hero Ayrton Senna never got a chance to drive for Ferrari, and you know maybe that could have been something that would have happened if uh, he hadn't had that terrible accident in 1994. But I I feel like the the noise around this is largely speculative. It's rarely helpful. But one way or another, my own position is that Lewis will probably stay with Mercedes. But okay. to be honest, if he chooses to go somewhere else, that's that's cool with me too. That's cool with you too. Okay. I, I I hear you on that. Uh, Uno with a super chat. Why is Christian attacking Mercedes on their budget, and what makes him feel he can report on the teams on their spending when eyes are on him? Well, it's because Christian's done this before, and that's what they do. And you know, <laughs> well, well, it, it is. I mean, and to be clear, you, first of all, let me just say. The default assumption is that you should never believe anything a team principal says. Any team, any team principal, <laughs> okay. Christian, Toto, right. anybody, just don't believe what they say because their their primary job function is to promote the team and to help the team and to organize the team's face relative to the public. They don't have a, a legal requirement to be truthful or accurate or unbiased or anything. They're not. They're just saying what they think is in the best interest of the team. And Christian Horner is kind of a master at this. You know, forcing attention to certain areas and sort of deflecting them from other areas. And he he fights for his team as hard as as anyone else does. What you should be very excited about for the Mercedes crew is if Red Bull is actually attacking Mercedes or or suggesting, Mm. well, you're over the cost gap and you're this and that. That means they've seen some real pace. Right. That means that as as much as we love to pour over, you know, lap times and look at the, the performance and the gap and everything else, the reality is the teams themselves have detailed simulation tools and digital twins of their rivals' cars to estimate what their mass is, mass distribution, power, drag. They, you know, look at the performance of the actual car and back out what are reasonable guesses for what their parameters are. Mm-hmm. And Rebel has seen something alarming in uh, Mercedes' performance. So it, it may be slightly annoying to hear Christian Horner seemingly go after Mercedes, right. but it's a sign of something positive to come. So yeah, it, should be a good, like it, it should be it should be a very entertaining rest of the season. I like it. Mary Bina says, Bryson, if there was a choice at Aston Martin, I would take Felipe Drogovich instead of Lance Stroll. It, it almost happened. You know, I... Yeah, I know I with really, the wrist situation, I, right? But it, Lance was... Yeah, like, I, I really, back. really didn't like... I really didn't like the way uh, that Lance was pushing himself so dramatically only like a week or so after his injuries. And we saw the video. They were uh, hor- horrific injuries that he experienced. And right. if there's one thing that I would not want to do after breaking, you know, bones in my wrists and, and feet, it would be driving a Formula One car. I mean, th- these these cars can injure you even when you don't crash them. I mean, Facts. just, just the, the G-forces and the way that they put your, the forces they put on your body. You know, Yuki Tsunoda uh, last year or the year before had some serious injuries with his sh- issues with his shoulder um, in the AlphaTauri. He wasn't crashing necessarily, but just the way that he was sitting in the car and the G-forces and everything, it just put some weird loads on right. his shoulder. He was, he was in a lot of pain. So uh, it, it, I can understand why people were, were, you know, celebrating Lance, and even I do too, his ability to push through that and drive the car. But still, but we saw effects can, of that when he came back. He was unable to properly hold the steering wheel through certain turns, man. Yeah, I mean, I 
all things considered, I would have preferred him to just take an extra week or two to, to heal up before the race. And so because Aston Martin forced the situation to, to allow him to drive, um, we never saw what Felipe Drogovic could do. I mean, we saw him a little bit in free practice. Right. In, in, uh, in free he practice was improving. In, in, he was improving. In, pre, in, in preseason testing, we, right. we've seen him. Um, he's a very highly rated Brazilian driver, and all of my Brazilian associates tell me he's uh, a very good driver and probably uh, could do very well in Formula 1. But given the situation with Lance and given his relationship to the team, it's been argued jokingly in the past that he is the only driver on the grid with a permanent contract to be a driver. Right. Um, and honestly, as I said before, Lance may turn things around and he may become a great driver, but I, I just feel like another driver could probably do better there. Felipe Drogovic is a, is a F2 world champion as well. So I, I'm very curious to see uh, how he would do if he were actually put in the car. All right. Malachi says, do you think Fernando's career numbers are truly representative of his true skill? And is his ranking all time amongst drivers because of his bad career moves? I mean, Fernando has always been a very talented driver. His two biggest, uh, I don't want to call them character flaws, but I would call them challenges. His two biggest challenges are absolutely slating a team that he doesn't like. Uh, we, we forget that the entire you know, Spygate situation in 2007 was kicked off by what, what Fernando was doing in response to how they were treating him and Lewis Hamilton and their whole mm-hmm. relationship. You know, He was integral to the fact that information even came out about uh, the drawings being taken from Ferrari. That's one of his, his issues um, as far as slating his his team uh, and a related one a related one is is just jumping ship very quickly yeah. and and that could be something that I said before is is just as likely to result in uh, a you know going backwards as opposed to making progress with the next team but no I mean I think if you ignore if you were ignore that you know part of his profile right. uh, he's always been one of the best drivers around he's a, a great driver and i do think that if were, there were some slightly different circumstances he would have won probably at least four championships i can think of mm. um 2012 and 2010 were probably close ones you know we can think of uh you know vitaly petrov and uh, blocking him in, in abu dhabi and we can think about how that that uh you know, the 2012 championship went down in Brazil with Seb, you know, winning in, in the end. So I, I think, you know, Formula One is um, it's a very random, very stochastic sport. And it's one of the reasons why it's difficult to purely judge someone's ability and performance just on the records. There is an element of chance there as well. Right. But almost that's why it makes it even more impressive. I mean, to have all the championships, all the wins and all the podiums, knowing you could have lost them at any time just because of a bad qualifying or you crash, you know, trying to lap a back marker or there's weird rain or a mechanical failure. That's what makes the success even more impressive is that you have all these numbers of wins and championships and everything. And it could have gone, you know, drastically different. As a matter of fact, with you talking about Alonzo sliding teams, what do you think about the whole Honda power unit situation like they're saying they're over it they're saying they're not going to let it you know come in do you still think Alonzo being the person he is and the time that's still left between now and then that he could possibly do something to kill that deal with Honda and Aston Martin no no, no I don't think okay. that and, and, and the reason the reason why I don't think that is because 
uh, if there's one thing Fernando likes more than complaining about a team that's winning. not doing well, it's it's winning. <laughs> it's being competitive, and and the evidence of that is how incredibly love he is right and, now. <laughs> and 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 his 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 he's just slid into this mentorship role that so so effortlessly right. and and with such a. You know, it's not unctuous in a sense, but it's just very smooth with it. Yeah. And he is fully committed to Aston Martin. As far as he is concerned, they have delivered the goods and they are the best, the most likely team to provide them in the future. He will do anything he can and everything that he can to, you know, move that team forward. And if Honda coming in, which is going to be, you know, the defending champion uh, constructor for the power units comes yeah. in and can provide the, the actual uh, details of what they, or the actual performance that they need. He's gonna lo- welcome them with open arms. It's all water under the bridge, you know. Even <laughs> even talking with Lewis is very you know smiley and, and and happy with him as well. But you have to remember, you know, there's no substitute for competence and knowledge in Formula One. Honda had a very funny situation with Fernando. I think it was in 2016 yeah. or 2017, one of those years when he was with uh, with McLaren, when Fernando took uh, Pujon flat. At Spa, right? Every maybe Lewis Hamilton could take it flat now in W11, you know. But normally you lift in front of Puan and you, you know, go around the corner and, and then whatever. On one of Fernando's qualifying laps, he was hitting it hard. It went flat through that corner, and Honda's logic in their hybrid system used a throttle off to know where it was on the track mm. and to d- dictate when you're harvesting and when you're applying power to the hybrid system. And because Fernando went through that corner flat, it confused it and it started to, ha- it started to harvesting in the middle of the corner and actually losing power. Losing so, power. so, you, you know, <laughs> they, 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 things are, things are, are different now. You know, Honda has, over the course of the the years in, in the hybrid era, has really developed incredible competency both on the, on the yeah. combustion side with the engine, but also in their turbochargers and also in their their hybrid system, the batteries. They're just operating at a, at a very high level. Right. So I don't have any reason to believe right off the bat that they would have any issues going into uh, 2026. Okay. The one thing I will say though is that we're losing the MGUH, which is the turbo powered you know energy recovery system, right. and we're massively increasing the power of the MGUK light by three times almost. So the architecture of the new engines in 2026 will be a little bit different, but. I think Honda is in a very good position with Aston Martin, and Aston Martin, ultimately, if they want to achieve their ambitions, can't be a customer engine in, in terms of True. Mercedes or another team because the way that engine and the gearbox specifically also uh, integrates with the rest of the design of the car, it, it affects suspension design, it affects aero performance, you know, how, sure. how big you can make your diffuser is a function of how much space does your gearbox take up in the diffuser, you know, so True. they need to have full control over that to be successful, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. Man, you got some love right here, I'm going to read it out to you, because it's always good to give you your flowers, Bryson, I believe in giving people their flowers while, while they're here, period. Walter Shaver says, love to hear Bryson drop the knowledge, he thanks you very much. Will I am says these tech talks are always very informative. Thank you, Bryson and Jay, but mainly Bryson because he brings that. You know, I could be abrasive. Bryson is like the other side of the X Men. You know, he's like, hey, let's let's, <laughs> let's let's talk about this. I'm hey, like Wolverine, like no. Look, <laughs> look, I I'm I'm either Professor X or Morpheus from right. the Matrix. Pick, Morpheus, pick. hey, don't forget, man. Halloween, you supposed to try to be that man. I want to see yeah. the Morpheus. I want to see the Morpheus suit, man. Hey, those those glasses are hard to get, man. I <laughs> they gotta are. find some. And uh, Uno says, really kind of in relation to what you said, coming back on Sunoto, do you think that the five-second penalty he received was was wrong? 
Do you think that it was right or it was wrong? Because there was also another situation where it was it uh, it was with Joe, but then we also had Russell who went off track. So what do you think about the Sonoda penalty? Do you think it was harsh? Sonoda thinks it was harsh. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was probably a, a bit harsh. I mean, I think the, the biggest challenge is, again, when we're comparing and contrasting that incident with what happened with, with Max and Carlos Sainz. Okay. Max actually went further to the left than Sonoda did, right, as far as uh, their relation to the other car. The difference is Sonoda... Uh, Joe rather uh, backed out, or Joe yeah. didn't back out in his in his drive with with Sonoda, and Signs did. So if you were to actually take Joe's decision to stay on the track and combine that with Max's position of where his car was, yeah. then Max would have gotten the penalty. Right. And then the reverse of that is if you know Joe had backed out in his move with with Sonoda. Sonoda wouldn't have gotten a penalty. So we find ourselves in this very odd situation with the regulations that whether or not the inside car gets a penalty isn't actually a function of their racing line. It's a function of what the other driver decides to, to do. Do they decide to you know keep their foot in and be pushed off, or do they decide to, to back out? And so I, I just feel like there's room for improvement in how precise we are with our language in describing what the regulations are and what the rules are. But, you know, all things considered, I think the, the Sonoda penalty was probably a bit harsh. As, uh, you know, I think someone else said on another uh, show, it's always difficult when a supposed infraction, which results in one position change, gives you a penalty that results in like five position changes. I mean, that's always yeah. uh, a challenging situation. So, you know, I, I'm not really sure how I would feel about it. All I would do is just try to think of wh- what language I would add okay. to the regulations to make it a bit more clear as far as when you would expect the penalty and when not. But I, I don't want to do a, a think piece on why Yuki Snowda gets so many penalties. But let's just say <laughs> I don't think they're all. I, I don't think they're all deserved. No, okay, that's how I would say. So what? What if all, and brother? While we're coming down here, do you would you like to talk about that we haven't talked about? Because you have some things that you do like to talk about. Because I wanted to, you know, see about why even Ferrari didn't kind of go along with the Alpine and Aston kind of direction since they're they're kind of Ferrari babies, derivatives of Ferrari's kind of design. They kind of, they went in a direction I didn't really think they were going. I thought they would kind of go more Alpine and Aston since those were already derivatives and Aston's been successful with it, but they didn't. So what would you like to go into? No, I mean... You have to remember, as much as we love the aero of these cars and how they're shaped and what we expect the teams to be able to do, given you know free reign in defining the geometry, right? They can't they can't make whatever they want. There are mechanical limitations. There's hard points to where the bodywork is mounted. There's you know intercoolers. There's radiators. There's oil coolers. There's right. things that are in this iPod that they just can't move around. And I think that's one of the reasons why Mercedes took so long to bring this new upgrade. I think early on we were thinking. Well, you know, Mercedes has this crazy zero pod, you know, uh, tightly packed cooling system. If they want to put wide side pods on, they can just put it on there. It's not a big deal. But the reality is that wasn't actually correct because what ends up happening is to get such a tight side pod configuration that Mercedes had, and Ferrari has their own quirks as well, but they had to move a lot of the cooling outside of the space where the side pods would normally be and put them on the center on top of the engine and and reroute things that way. And that increases your center of gravity, which has an adverse effect on dynamic load transfer and performance and handling of the car. And so one of the reasons why Mercedes took so long to, to bring their package forward is because they totally changed the cooling configuration of the car to put more things in the side pod. And regarding Ferrari, 
their suspension design and their own cooling configuration and then also their engine architecture as far as where the headers, exhaust headers go and everything. Yeah. Um, that also may be limiting them as far as how they can change their side pod design. They certainly can't do a, a Aston Martin water slide design. Um, <laughs> There, there are some extreme things uh, going on with that with that side pod design. Yeah, you haven't heard that before. Water slide. Okay, we, <laughs> that's a cool we, one. We we have uh, we have uh, an F1 Tech group chat where oh, we talk about shit. all these things quite quite often. <laughs> Aston Martin has has water slides, you know, um, and Mercedes' new design is called the wide pod. You know, we we have these yeah, all the things. <laughs> we have all these things. Um, so. We we have to we have to remember that obviously everything in engineering in general, but Formula One specifically, is okay. a compromise, and we should view these things as iteration zero, iteration one of the new direction. Okay. Ferrari, I think, may still be struggling with this idea of actually shifting their design because they want to believe they have the right concept. But this is what I tell people time and time again: if there's if there's one optimal design or optimal part of the design space where the right solution is, right. that's just what the solution is. I mean, it's the same physics for everyone. There are no supersonic jet fighters that are biplanes. Right? They, they, just, they just aren't. And it's, 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 and it's not because people aren't being creative. It's not because, well, you know, we have a different solution to the same problems. Like, no, it's just not going to be an optimal design. Right. So if the optimal design for the 2022 regulations without barge boards and heavy reliance on ground effect is a wide side pod with a downwashing aft, that's what it's going to be. That's just, mm. that's just what it's going to be. And the sooner you accept that and admit that, the better off you'll be. I mean, look at Aston Martin. They changed their side pod design radically at Spain Facts. last year. Facts. And we all remember, we called it the Green, the Bull, Green Bull because it looked identical like to, Red Bull. to Red Bull. Right. But given that sort of humbling uh, step in their story, look at where they are now. Look at where they are now. So not only are they much faster than they've ever been before, they've made the biggest jump of any team I can think of in, in years, except for like mm. Braun. I mean, they're really high up there. Right. But also their design isn't a copy of the Red Bull. They, they started with that design that was very similar, mm-hmm. found whatever goodies were there to, to, to exploit, and then kept developing with their own ideas. And as a result of that, they really have found some real pace. So the sooner you admit that maybe there's a different direction to go in, the, the sooner you commit to it, the, the better off you'll be. This, this is, again, why I want to commend the engineers at Bricksworth and Brackley at Mercedes. They had every opportunity to make their car slower in an attempt to actually make it faster. And they ended up actually doing well. So The way Bryson pushed it sometimes, <laughs> They got every opportunity to make it slow, <laughs> like it, but they did, and that is true. I I do credit Aston Martin for taking bits and notes and pieces and improving because that was a massive jump, man. Like from what they did, where they were to what they ended up going to, to what they are today. So, very true in that, brother. Do you got anything else you want to add, man? I really do appreciate the the knowledge, the the comedy that you have. Most people don't realize, but Bryson is does have comedy. You just gotta really have a exquisite taste for what it is, man. But that's like that damn water slide shit. I did not hear that. That's the first time I heard that. No, I, I don't think I have anything specific. Just uh, you know, just try to enjoy the races and try to enjoy the F1 season. And as I said before, the F1 community in general and the tech community specifically is very knowledgeable. Um, very helpful, and most people are willing to answer the questions if you have them. So we're looking forward to the next race coming up, which is going to be in Canada. I have no idea what's going to happen, but I do know it'll be entertaining. 
Big shot, big shot, man. I want to thank you for coming. So listen, I told you all at the beginning of the episode of the podcast, please go to Tech Heads Podcast. Hit five stars on there. Great information. All the information and stuff that you just experienced here. You can do it every day. You can do it every day at Tech Heads. They got a roster of things. It's like going into a menu of filet mignon. You want ribeye? We got ribeye technology. You want, yeah, it's all types of cuts of Wagyu steak of tech talk there. You can go over there. Hit five stars. Give Bryson and them some support. Him and his team. Him and the team. And also go over to Wolfpack Performance Podcast and hit five stars well and listen to me. I could be abrasive sometimes, but hey, I just do what I do and I am who I am. And if you like me for who I am, we'll, we'll have a great relationship. So everybody else that joined in the live chat, people that gave Bryson his flowers, I really appreciate it. Matter of fact, Bryson, you got some more flies here. It says, Bryson, knowledge. He is a Yoda of F1. Bryson, you the Yoda, bro. You were the Yoda. <laughs> <laughs> F, F, F1 Yoda is definitely a new one. We'll, we'll, we'll see. How, but, uh, but honestly, I think, like I said before, there, there are plenty of people who are more experienced and more talented in this than me, but I am right. glad that people are enjoying this and I'll try to keep doing it. And in the closing, OG Zilla, one thing I want to point out is the fact that Mercedes is almost two years behind on the style of concept compared to the rest of the field and did not fall back in position, but increased performance just shows how talented their engineers are. OG Zilla, indeed, indeed, good point. And we will have Bryson back again. Uh, he is family. He's always welcomed here, but he is busy because he has his own podcast. So we're just thankful anytime you do give us, brother. So really much appreciate that. Uh, Bryson, you hold on. I'm going to say goodbye to the fam so you know what this is. Another episode of Performance Talk. We will see you again soon. Make sure you hit like. Make sure you hit subscribe. Make sure you check out the YouTube channel. Make sure you check out the podcast. And don't forget, Purple Collection hats and shirts are available. Peace and love to everybody that joined. We will see you again soon. Peace. Thanks for watching another episode of Wolfpack Performance. Don't forget to check out some of my other content on Formula One and motorsports topics. Like, share, subscribe, and we go live on the weekends. See you soon.